Welcome to Hacked Off. In this episode, I've got a, a guest with me here. I've got Greg here. Um, Greg, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, what do you do and uh, what's your background? Uh, hi, my name is Greg Vanegast. I am currently the head of information security for the University of Salford. My background is, uh, we say, just weird because otherwise we're going to be here for a long, long time. Got, got my first job after being thrown in the back of a van by four federal agents. And it's been kind of a weird detour since then. From from those heights to Salford University, I would consider it the other way around. Okay, that's but, good. That's uh, good to hear. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about specifically is kind of continuing on from previous conversations that we've had in the podcast, and what we've been talking about with other guests is things like the the CISO role and this this head of security role and, and what they do. And and I'd kind of like to flip the conversation a little bit now that I've got you here and talk about this idea of security basics. Mm -hmm. So people very often talk about, oh, companies are, are struggling with the basics of security. And kind of the, the three areas that, that I want to talk about, if we can, is, is patching passwords and phishing. Why do you think companies struggle with the basics? Um, it's interesting because you started with, uh, with leadership and then you're talking about flipping it. And I think it's actually one and the same. I think there, okay. is, there is a lack of leadership. There's a lack of holistic approach. And I think that's why people are unable to do the basics. Cause you, the basics are very easy to do, but you have to have a tremendous amount of visibility and awareness and business integration and alignment to know what's out there, know what your business is doing and how to protect it. And so how would how would somebody get more visibility then? Say, for example, you've just walked into a role and they say, hi, we've got a network. We want you to cover the basics for us. How do you, um, how'd you start? It, it's, it's, uh, it's quite odd. You have to actually talk to people, which is uh, something most security people do not do. Um, I think it's, uh, it's kind of one of our, our own cultural issues. We talk about a lack of security culture, but I find within information security, we quite often lack the culture to actively engage people and relate to people. And uh, I have to take the mickey out of myself every time I introduce myself because one out of two people, they just cringe when they hear your security. And so that's that's clearly an impression that we've given oh. to people. And uh, a lot of people, uh, I've been denied a lot of roles because I was told I was too proactive, mm -hmm. too assertive, uh, because there's this perception where they just think you're going to be disruptive. You are security, you're going to stop things, you're going to say no. When if you do things... Explain to me what it is you do, what you need done, and I will build something around you that uh, may even have some practical benefits to you in order to make you secure, then that's a lot easier to do. And they're, they're actually surprised by that. They're actually so surprised that they get really collaborative uh, in a hurry. And I think you make far more progress in covering the basics because you can, you know, you can add all the, the detection and response technology in the world. But if you're missing tons and tons of patches, you're just going to get tons and tons of alerts out of them. Mm -hmm. And my analogy is always, if I'm driving a 70-ton tank, I don't even care who's throwing rocks at me. It just doesn't bother me. So if everything's hardened, configured, you have 100% visibility in your asset management, everything's patched up, and you've got you know good visibility to your estate, let them at it. That's really funny when you, you open there with uh, talking to people. Because I thought you were going to go with like, oh, security people don't have uh, good social skills as a stereotype. But it, it seems that you're more talking about the, the culture or maybe the stereotype of security people being there 
to mess with things, right? To like to be a blocker. Yeah, I think I think we do tend to be blockers, and I think um, which we shouldn't be. Um, and I think it's about in many ways, I think we've alienated the business because of how we traditionally act, or at least what the perception is. And obviously, we're doing it; otherwise, that perception wouldn't be there. Uh, so we really need to make a lot of effort to kind of reverse that perception and get people to work with us. Uh, because, yeah, people do feel like we get in the way because apparently we that's what we've been doing is getting in the way. Getting in the way is just uh, a required part of the job and we're doing a bad job of explaining to people that it's in their best interest or is it that there is, there is a way of not getting in the way? Part of it is is raising that awareness of what's not in their best interest. But other times we say, no, you can't do that. Um and either it's a bit alarmist of, okay, yeah, there is a risk there, but it's minimal and look at the business benefit. I mean, you just have to deal with this. Um, and the other times is there are ways of, they want to do something and there's a way of doing it securely and they're not doing that. You know, what they're doing is this is not secure, but there is a way of doing it securely and we can do it so that it's not really cumbersome, but we rarely provide that solution. So we're just blocking it there and... And sometimes we go a little bit over the top. A lot of people, you know, they want all the toys and all the monitoring and everything around it. And, you know, sometimes you you just need to bring it up to a certain level. There's no point in, you know, if your organization is like a 4 out of 10 security-wise, you don't have to insist that everything's a 10 out of 10. Just if something is subpar, bring it up to that level. And Because otherwise you're just going to firefight constantly. Um, Just fix what you can fix and concentrate on on that engagement and that proactivity upstream so that you're actually fixing the processes, you're fixing what's coming up so that everything that is coming into the organization is then a 10 out of 10 and the old stuff will just drop off uh, eventually out of you know age and being retired. Well, people counter that with, uh, well, how do we know what level we're supposed to be at? If you're saying, oh, you don't need to be a 10 out of 10, will, will uh, another security manager maybe worry that if they build everything to a four and something bad happens, will they be blamed for not trying to go a little further? Um, I mean, if, if you say you're a four and you build something up to an eight, you've got 99 other things around it that are a four. So things are just going to go around it. So if it's, there's no point in having one system be incredibly secure if, if it's just, if it's not homogenous. I mean, obviously, if, if it's a quick win and you can get that up to a 10, mm. yes. But if you're going to spend a million pounds securing a system and it's going to be end of life in two years anyway, What's the point? Spend that money uh, more proactively and you could secure 50 systems for the same money instead of just that one. So how do you work out what level is appropriate for your business? I, I guess what I'm saying is, well, what's a four? Um, yeah, yeah, there's no such thing as there, you know, as percentage terms and, and all that stuff. We're, it's a communication tool. There, there's no such thing. I mean, you can have the, the most complex and, and well thought out system in the world and it's missing one critical patch and it goes from a 10 to a, a zero. Um, so there's there's no such thing really, but it's in many ways it's it's about how cumbersome it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things you can have uh, a lot of benefit, uh, but it doesn't impact the user experience, so it's fine. It's an easy deploy, and you can get that up to it. And other times it's it's just really cumbersome, and you just do the bare minimum, or you know. Are we advocating for the bare minimum there. I'm not. I'm, ab- <laughs> I'm absolutely not. And my my whole philosophy is and. I dislike the way we do risk management now because I feel like it's risk juggling. It's just a bunch yeah. of Excel sheets and what do we prioritize and, and like so much. If you spend half the effort doing all this quote risk management unquote and actually securing systems fundamentally, 
um, you know, get your asset management sorted, get your patching sorted, get your configuration management sorted, your gold standards, all that stuff. You'd have secure systems, you know. I was about to say 100%, <laughs> 99% or whatever. You know, you'd, you'd have robust systems from the start, you know. So I absolutely believe, and, and you can apply so many concepts to that. You could, you could call that zero trust. You can call that defensive depth. Like if I simply do the best possible job securing every system, then um, then I'm going to have that defense in depth because, you know, I've locked down my routers. I've locked down my firewalls. I've locked down my front-end servers. I've locked down my back-end servers. So you, you, you're going to have all that. So that, that's absolutely the approach. Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's how you should do security. But when you walk into an environment and you've got thousands of existing servers and tens of thousands of existing desktops, that's just not feasible. So you do have to prioritize. And, and everything's on a sliding time scale as well. So you can spend money and time and effort fixing what's in production now to, you know, the, the ninth degree. Or just do the bare minimum, not the bare minimum, do something adequate. That sounds terrible because I'm you know, technically a Nazi <laughs> in, t- in terms of securing stuff. But do what's adequate and focus those limited resources on where things are starting at, on the root causes. Because that will trickle down. And without any additional effort, everything that spawns out of that will be secure. As opposed to just spending all that money firefighting mm-hmm. systems that are going to be end of life in a couple of years anyway, and then you have to start all over on the new stuff. It's just about prioritizing where that that effort and that spend goes. So, how should companies approach prioritizing? Then, is that are we are we talking about threat modeling here or something like that? Um, threat modeling is important, but I think it's reactive as well. Uh, threat modeling works quite well when uh, you know dealing with with phishing and that kind of stuff because you you just simply just can't secure that you can't block it out mm-hmm. uh no I, I believe in uh i always create a framework i create standards i build the relationships with it and you know what going forward this is how we're going to build systems this is the architectural standards we're going to have this is so on and so forth and, and then you you end up just over time more and more of your estate meets those standards and just becomes more and more secure okay you mentioned an interesting thing where you say um fishing you can't block that yeah well, it's it's you know it's one of those things where it's it's very much a case of continuing improvement. Like you see different different phishing attacks, different tactics, different vectors, and you you constantly adapt and oh, what are they doing now? Okay, we could we could mitigate against that doing this, and now they're doing something else. We can mitigate that doing this. I think I think that's a commonly held belief. In fact, on my notepad in front of me, it says security awareness training will not work. So yeah. that was a, a thing to a thing to raise. But is that unique to phishing? Or could you say that for, for any threat? Because, I mean, we haven't fixed malicious software, right? Haven't fixed ransomware. Well, see, that, there's the thing. Um, so I'm not 100% sure what you meant at the beginning there, to be honest. But the thing about, you know, ransomware, look at like WannaCry and NotPetya. This is exploiting SMBV1. Uh, and that, that was replaced by SMBV2 in 2006. And we still have internet-facing computers out there, like, running this stuff. And it, it, that's that simple proactivity of, had you, you know, 10 years ago or even five years ago said, okay, let's phase this out. We know it's not secure. Let's build our new systems with security. You shouldn't have had, you know, all these things were patchable. They're all preventable things. So we keep coming up with, uh, there's this whole discussion about how fast the, you know, this cyber, I don't like that word, but all the threats are evolving and how complex they're getting. At the end of the day, they're exploiting, you know, known attack vectors, known vulnerabilities, if you get the basics right, 
you know, if you've patched all your servers to everything that was available there, that everything that Microsoft, you know, you can download all their patches, if you'd actually applied them, you would never at any point in the last 10 years been vulnerable to any type of ransomware or, or most malware. I think the prime example that counts that point would be NotPetya, though. So NotPetya was a malicious update through MEDoc, the um, Ukrainian accounting software, mm-hmm. and then it propagated by pulling credentials out of memory and using PSExec. So that is credential theft, not a missing patch. They, right. That meant that if you had, at the time, a fully patched Windows 10 box and your MEDoc was compromised, you would still be hit by NotPetya. I've been corrected then. I was thinking WannaCry, sorry. No, you, you're absolutely right yeah. by WannaCry. And this is the this is the, the really interesting distinguishing uh, feature of between WannaCry and NotPetya that like nobody talks about. And and I think the problem with that is is almost media-driven. So WannaCry happened and everyone talked about it and then NotPetya happened too close to WannaCry. So it's like the BBC is like, oh, we can't run another they're story. They're one of the this. same, yeah. Yeah, so they're very similar. And, and they both spread using the WannaCry vulnerability if I do inverted yeah, commas, blue, uh... which is MS-17 or 10. Uh, but NotPetya additionally did credential theft. So that was a really interesting thing. It also had a, a watering hole attack. The credential theft, though, is also not new. So it's not something you can fix with patching, uh, but we, we tend to refer to it as a Mimikatz-style attack. When, when was Mimikatz written? Like 2011 or something like that? Yeah, and that's where, you know, that's where you start talking about Arbok and limiting the impact of that. Mm. Um, yeah, the, I think the, the third party, the supply chain vulnerabilities are getting really, really big. And that, I think that's a really, really good example of it. It, it is. It's it's one of the two go-to examples uh, because it was a malicious update. They also used a watering hole attack, so they compromised a third-party website. It's a Ukrainian government website uh, and had, had those host the malware. I, I don't necessarily believe the idea that supply chain threats are getting bigger. I think what it might be is just attackers have noticed they are working. So I, we'll, I, we'll, we'll continue them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, I don't feel like anything's changed in the last 20-plus mm. years that... The, the same old vectors are there. They're just getting exploited to, you know, more higher or lower levels. Uh, and there's definitely some trends in there. I think they're they're just they're definitely getting smarter about using these things that theoretic, theoretically have always been there. Um, but yeah, I've, it's an interesting one, especially the third party risk one, mm. is is one that's very very hard to mitigate. I think um, a part of that reason might be companies not really knowing what a third party is. So we think of uh, supply chain risk. And people will think of their suppliers, mm-hmm. but then they won't necessarily consider things like third-party JavaScript. So that's what hit BA, right? Not that we know all of the details of the BA breach, but it is uh, understood to be a Medcart-style attack, which is third-party JavaScript being modified. Um, but yeah, supply chain stuff's not new. Oldest example I can think of. Target, 2013, hit through their HVAC vendor. Home Depot, 2014, hit through their HVAC vendor. Um, BA, yeah, supply. I think um, supply chain risk is is... Definitely an interesting area and, and probably one of those things that we should be putting under basics. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I've noticed how whenever you got like the legal or the commercial uh, department and they draft mm. contracts with partners or clients and this and that, the terminology they use to define the like infosec responsibilities are like, what, what language are you speaking? <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. at, at, at Capita, literally like the entire 500 plus server estate for TV licensing is referred to as quote, the application, unquote. Mm. You know, there's uh, hundreds of systems and databases and all kinds of different stuff. So not, none of the controls and the terms are industry-recognized ones. So none, none of it actually makes sense, and they don't involve security people in drafting that. I was actually, like, the first person there who actually mm. requested to see the, see the contracts, and they were really, really surprised. 
And it was actually nice because then they started talking to other vendors and they're actually, would you mind attending the meeting yeah. and telling us what we need to look out for and how we can define these things better? I think um, one of the one of the things that comes up when I talk to customers about supply chain risk, they'll they'll show a contract and and it's legalese. I'll say, hey, look, no, it says it says the third party is responsible. And it's like, oh, that's good, but uh, what happens if they don't do it? Like, yeah. what what's the the punishment or the punitive action if, if they just just don't secure you? So if a breach comes through them, and and I think in most instances that I've looked at, you know, an SLA violation, it's oh, you'll get some free hosting or you'll get a discount on the invoice or something like that, and. My my favorite one was uh, well, it rhymes with capita. I won't say who it is. Um, so contract. I've I've said this on a previous podcast. Contract comes in. They've got a big client, uh, three point five billion pounds a year they collect from uh, from us uh, taxpayers, and uh, they basically forked a bunch of stuff out to IBM. Mm. And I asked like, well, these five hundred servers got taken by capita and then forked back out to IBM. I'm like. I'm reading through the contracts because no one else had ever done so. And I'm like, what are we doing for Seam? And they're like, well, IBM took the contracts they have for Seam. I'm like, okay, but what's, you know, give me some of the details. What tool, what's the scope, what are they logging, what are they correlating, who's doing it, are they trained, where's the data, what's the retention, what's the reporting? No one knew. So I call IBM and they're like, and I'm like, what are you guys doing about these 500 servers? You know, give me the details. Mm. They're like, what do you mean 500 servers? Because <laughs> <laughs> our, our interpretation of the contract, which says the, the application, application, is the web application. I'm like, all right, so how many of these 500 servers are the web application according to you guys? And it's like, uh, 18. Okay, second question. There's a clause here in the contract, which no one seems to know about on our end. So anything that's end of life gets paid for, but isn't supported. So how many of these 18 servers are actually end of life and therefore unsupported. Guess. Oh, it's got to be none of them. All of them. So none of them were monitored. Yeah, that's all what of, I All meant, of them yeah. were, yeah, yeah. None of, none of them. <laughs> all were end yeah, of yeah. life. So none were, so, I was, so I'm like, let me get this straight. So we've been paying you 25,000 pounds a month for the last three years to monitor absolutely nothing. They're like, yeah. That's very, very good contract team <laughs> at IBM. Um, and, you know, no one had noticed in three plus years. And that's the kind of, there's this blindness and this tick box mentality with with contracts where, oh, yeah, we've done it, it's done, and we move on. Uh, whether that be suppliers or subcontractors or service providers, uh, it's it's quite bad. And I think we need to get a lot more involved in the in the business on on that side. Where where could somebody start though? If you're if you're a security manager and you've just taken over a system, you've got all of these suppliers. Is it literally you got to you got to clear your diary and start reading contracts? I think you. I think you. Yeah, a bit. To be honest, I think you, I've got. I'm hiring two security resources as my first two, mm-hmm. and one is BAU operations, and the other one is simply to go around and talk to every single business function and find out what do you do, what are your processes, what does it connect with, what data do you handle, what are the data flows, and map that out. That's that's 50% of my staffing yeah. because that is absolutely crucial. What do you have that we don't know you have? <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, because I hear stuff like, oh, our asset management is quite good, actually. We've, I think we've got about 85% of our, uh, our assets tracked. I'm like, okay, that's still a thousand plus endpoints that we don't know anything about. It's also uh, a lovely amount of vague, isn't it? It's like, we think it's 85%. And that's the thing. And I think think we have to help in this area because I think a lot of security people would roll their eyes at at that. But, you know, 
the IT function, the service delivery function, they're doing a functional job. They are basically keeping the business running. Um, they're doing a lot of stuff that we don't know how to do, so we can't be hard. You know, it's our only focus is security, whereas for them, their their priority, you know, security is number ten on the list. Uh, they don't, they have a different perspective on things. They look at functional things. They use, they look at user experience. They look at all kinds of stuff that we would be absolutely clueless about. So you, we can't be disrespectful of them. Quite often, I see you know security people gather in a room and just take the crap out of users and stakeholders and IT and stuff. And it's like that that's not helping anyone. Uh, I think that that's so common in my experience. I think. Linking back to, to phishing, which we briefly mentioned earlier, the thing that I see all the time is, um, oh, yeah, we got compromised because this user clicked a link and they're, they're idiots. And it's like, if your company can be compromised by somebody clicking a link, then that is not that user's yeah. fault. Yeah. And, qu- and quite often you see, you know, okay, the user clicked a link, and then what? So they, they clicked the link, so now they, they're operating with the level of access I mean, of that user. Mm-hmm. How did that allow him to compromise your entire data center? Clearly, you slipped up along the way somewhere. Like that, that basic user somehow was was able to, you know, escalate himself to admin, install all these hacking tools, scan your network. You didn't notice any of it. Compromise your firewall, your gateway, your entire data center because all your servers were missing half a dozen critical patches. It's the user's fault. Yeah. User was one link in the chain. The rest is just what you've done is basically make the user the new perimeter and just put the blame on him. And I, I don't think that that's acceptable either. And I think that mentality, so the user user awareness training, I find like things don't stick unless they work on a kind of an emotional, psychological level. Mm-hmm. So if you build relationships with the people, the things you ask of them will actually stick. Mm. Uh, I never ask anything of anyone without first having you know, met them, gotten to know them. Uh, done something for them, have a relationship for them. So I'd never come out of nowhere of, hey, I'm a security guy, you need to do this, because they're just going to be like, who the hell are you? What do you, what do you think about things like uh, companies where they send phishing emails to their own staff, like this phishing as a service or phishing testing? I think it could be useful. It's, it's honestly something I'm going to cons- I'm gonna probably have done in, in the coming year. It gives you a good baseline. It gives you an idea. Um but it's it's not necessarily an education tool. Uh, I th- I think like real life stuff, like what happened at University of Lancaster a couple months ago, or a month ago. Uh, oh yeah. So that that's like every time you have a real world example like that, that's a great kind of communications uh, point. You know, just share that, make them real. You know, this is real. This this is happening. Just be aware. Uh, some comms. It has to be relatable. You have to. Um, just bossing people around doesn't work. Yeah, I think uh, I'm generally against phishing as a service, which is why I was curious to hear what what you think about it. And the the reason for that is not that it's bad, but that in my experience, I see it poorly implemented. So one of the things that I see commonly for companies who are sending phishing emails to their own staff is that it's so easy to game the metrics. So if Mm. you want to show an improvement in in, uh, phishing detection, you send like, a uh, a really difficult phishing email, like something really yeah. hard to detect, and then two weeks later send the most obvious, you know, like uh, 419 scam. Yeah. I've inherited $9 billion. Uh, and then, of course, people will pick up on that obvious scam. And Yeah, no, I, yeah. You, have, you have to be honest about what you're doing. And I think this is this is part of what I don't like about how the, the whole compliance scene has become and how everything has become. I'm very wary of, ma- of metrics. 
And, and this is another part where having that trusted relationship where people, you know, you're, you're being honest with people, you're generally caring about people, they know you are trying to do everything you can and you, you feel passionate about that. That's a requirement. You cannot measure that because if, if your reporting is through metrics, then, you know, I've, I've lost count of the amount of kind of bloated information security organizations where just there's just money being wasted everywhere and yeah, they're just tweaking spreadsheets left and right to make it look good to management meetings. There's very little actual security work going on. And, and I think, yeah, I, I, accountability and security is really, really important. Um, there's there's some companies out there that have phenomenal security organizations and mm-hmm. are very well funded, lots of staff. Uh, and there's others where it's not because they're, you know, everyone says, well, because they're not spending enough. It's like, no, there's, there's places that are generally spending too much and they're overstaffed because it's, it's just bureaucratic and ivory tower building. And, Adds complexity. Yeah. And, and you know, because they've, they've gotten so complex, it actually isolates them from the business. You know, it's, it gives them an excuse to be disconnected. Uh, and, and, yeah, because I've seen some really, really toxic infosec organizations where they're not doing anything of value and just costing loads of money. So how can we how can we demonstrate improvement without metrics? Well, you do need metrics, but you need, you know, you can do like a total. It has to be apples to apples. So your your example is perfect. You know, mm-hmm. like I can do I can demonstrate metrics by the amount of, uh, you know, how many patches am I missing? How many vulnerabilities am I missing? Uh, but it, it comes to being honest because I could simply not look for the vulnerabilities and then not find them and oh, therefore yeah. <laughs> have my report look better, you know. But I genuinely want to expose absolutely everything yeah. and, and show it to you and then show you a downward trend. And sometimes there's there's going to be, because I've been more assertive, I found more stuff and it actually makes my report look bad. Um, so that's when you have to have that relationship with, you know, the upwards relationship with the board and your, and your CEO um, to explain that. It's like, yeah, we've, we found more, but it's because we've matured our capability and now we've found more. And as you know, when we find, we deal with it. You know, we've established that. Yeah, so I think you, I think coming from a pen testing background, um, that is something I'm very familiar with is where a company is uh, not worried, that they're worried you'll find things. Yeah. And it's like, it's just the wrong approach, right? Because yeah. it's like, no, no, you, we should be trying as best as we can to find everything so that can be addressed. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had, so... Before I got this job, I was just freelancing basically until I, I found my next role. And mm-hmm. I had four engagements on the trot because um, I, I kind of, you have all these security organizations and, you know, they're ISO compliant and they're this and that. And I walk in there and it's like, you know, they say, if you dig enough, you'll find the bodies. <laughs> but I've walked into places where like you can't walk because there's bodies piled three deep all over the place. Yeah. Um, and, and somehow they'd never noticed, you know, and they, they just kind of turned a blind eye to everything. They managed to get certified because the auditors didn't drill down enough. And some of these places, because I've, I've been advocating that, you know, good security should actually cost less money. Because if you've got, if it's set up properly and it's efficient, you, you don't get waste. You get a lot of visibility. And you don't have the waste where most security organizations, when they're spending millions a year, there's lots and lots of waste. So that, that attracted the attention of a few kind of heads of IT and stuff. And I got four engagements. And they're all supposed to be two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. The longest one lasted three days. They all asked me to leave. Because you, fa- you found so much stuff that it's just like, I'm sorry, like I thought you'd find some stuff, but I just cannot actually 
present this many findings because it just looks too bad. One, one of the things you mentioned is is the improvement, demonstrating improvement should be like a, a downward um, a downward trajectory. I think one of the things that I saw with the company a little while ago was where they were expecting that we would find loads of vulnerabilities and they would fix them and the, and the number of vulnerabilities would, would uh, gradually reduce. And, and they had absolutely no concept of the fact that new vulnerabilities yeah. would be released. Yeah. <laughs> and the, it wasn't even anything like, oh, zero days being discovered. It was just patches, right? Yeah. It's like every two weeks, Microsoft will release patches and the numbers will go up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's a funny yeah. thing. And, and so, some of these are, they're so cumbersome, so incredibly cumbersome that, you know, you walk in, there's like, oh, yeah, so this and this thing happened, you know, last year. So we've set up this big remediation project. And like you're nine months in, it's like you're nine months in and you've not even patched the patches from a year ago. And, you know, you're tracking the progress of this project thinking like, oh, we're almost done. It's like there's another year's worth of patches that have come out since then. And it's like you have to optimize your processes. And a lot of, you know, a lot of this stuff is handled by IT. Uh, and security gets very frustrated because they can't, you know, like you're just not patching fast enough. But, you know, take take the initiative and work with them to to improve their processes. Um, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of security people complain that, well, IT is not doing this or management doesn't support us. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you've identified the problem. Go fix it. It's like, oh, but it's not in our reporting structure. It's like influence doesn't give a crap about a box in an org chart. A janitor can influence a CEO if he's got a good idea. Mm. There's nothing stopping you from, you know, you you report here and, and they report to someone else. There's nothing stopping you from building relationships with those people and, and that collaboration and actually making them, you know, be champions for you. Why do you think companies struggle so much to, pass, to patch fast enough? Because they don't have a clue what what's in their estate, for starters. Visibility, is that it? Visibility is really terrible. Patching processes are slow. Uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of fear as to what the patches will do, which to me is like, well, <laughs> if, if you're that concerned that uh, you know, a standard Microsoft patch is going to tear down your, your in-house applications, maybe <coughs> you should be looking at how you develop your in-house applications. I think I think the problem is that we we get bad patches rarely, but frequently enough that somebody can always point to one within like the last year or something. Yeah, I was working with a company a little while ago, and I said basically that question. It's like, why are you patching so slowly? And they said, oh, it's because you know we need to make sure that the patches are good. So you presume that they're talking about testing, right? And yeah. Install it on a few machines, make sure that it doesn't cause a problem. It wasn't at all what they were doing. Was um, basically waiting to see if anyone complained, as in, like, does Twitter mention that the, the patch is causing systems <laughs> yeah. to crash and those kinds of things? It's like, this is this is atrocious. It's like, you know, patch the thing, test the thing. Yeah. Or, you know, or Especially nowadays, it's like, you, you can spin up an unlimited amount of, you know, replicates of your environment in the cloud if you need. Yeah. Oh, you, yeah. you know, you can just, here's my entire environment. I just, you don't want to leave it 24-7, but I spun, spun up a, a carbon copy of my environment. I'm running, you know, deploy all the tests. I've got my my test scripts that are developed with all the business units. We run every single business function through the environment in the span of four hours. Everything's fine. Promote it to production. You know, take move production to staging. Promote that that to production. Worst case, you find something out. You you just reverse it. You know, the, the think- odds of that happening are, are are minute. If you streamline the process, if you think it through, if you make it, you know, how many times do you see like. 10, 20, 50, 100 million pound CRM projects and these massive complex enterprise applications. And they're like, 
oh yeah, we never actually thought that we'd have to patch these servers, so we can't, you know, the system is not set up to, you can't reboot this, or you cannot deploy this patch, or you, or, you know, stuff like APIs collecting like text strings, and somehow you've managed to code it in such a way that it needs a specific version of JavaScript and a specific version of Internet Explorer, and that means you're stuck on Windows 7 forever. And I was like, oh, how? Why did you, how did you do this? I think, uh, I think that point that you've raised is, is something I haven't actually thought before, and it's, it's a really good idea. A lot of companies think testing patches is infeasible because it, they, they can't have an exact replica of their estate. But, of course, the cloud makes that a lot easier, right? Yeah, you we just, can just spin it up. Spin it up, test it, yeah. power it down. Yeah. I think that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Another thing I hear a lot as well from companies is where they'll, they'll do the kind of logical fallacy of going to the extreme. And it's like, um, you can patch things, you can reboot things, it's not that bad. And they'll go, oh, well, hospitals can't reboot systems or emergency services can't reboot systems. And you're not a hospital. Yeah. So stop <laughs> stop exactly. using this argument. Yeah, this is true. And, and you know, even, even the hospitals, you know, I think in the coming years, you're going to start seeing them design systems accordingly as well. Mm. You know, uh, there, there's ways of doing this. Um, and plus, you know, there's patching, but there's also kind of hardening. You know, you'll have like an MRI machine and it's got a Windows 7 PC built into it. Mm -hmm. It's part of the MRI, basically. Uh, but, you know, you, you harden that image, you know, so it doesn't, 90% of the patches out there aren't applicable to that system because all those OS components have been stripped out. So that, you know, it's a basic part of, of hardening. So the more, yeah, the, the more you strip down systems, the more you harden, the fewer patches you have to apply. But overall, there's, I mean, if, if you... And I, I realize that it's kind of a legacy thing where most environments have these issues, but that should be, like, this is going to be a massive long-term strategic problem. This is a problem that will linger on for years if you stop it today. But that's not a reason to not go and stop it today. Because otherwise, five years from now, you could have had all that, you know, fall off the cliff because it's end of life and replace with something brilliant, patchable, easily maintainable, or you could be in the same boat because five years ago you said it's not gonna, it's not worth the time because it's gonna take five years. That's the, the strategic part of the, the CISO and, and head of thinking. I think it should be, which is which is why it worries me that you know you got like an average, what is it, like seventeen month, um, turnover for CISOs. I'm literally writing that in my notepad. <laughs> that was the thing I wanted to write. So you're absolutely how, right. How is that enough time to set up an information security program? It's not. And there's, there's no standard way of being a CISO. So everyone's yeah. got a different philosophy, oh. a different strategy. So every time, you know, every 18 months, 17 months, whatever it is, someone starts a new five, three, five year strategy, which will never get completed and then gets picked up by someone new who sees it differently. And then you start again. You never get more than halfway. I strongly agree. Why, why don't companies engage in actual five year improvement programs? It's because their CISOs last less than two. <laughs> I think that is. Uh, there is some data to yeah. suggest that. But I think they, and it's it's interesting how, you know, they leave because they burn out. But I think even uh, you see heads of and you see CISOs and they're complaining about management support. Uh, I, I've started at UOS six weeks ago and, you know, management support is pretty good. I mean, the estate is vast. It's complicated. It's scattered. There's thousands of stakeholders, literally. Um, uh, the resources are minute. Uh, but they actually wanted me to fix it, which was what was so refreshing it's about like the, the buy-in. Yeah. However, that said, um, it was evident that they didn't, didn't quite understand the complexity of it. Because if you do want to do this well, strategically, long-term, you do have to get proactive. You have you do have to get to the root causes. You do have to have visibility and engagement and alignment with absolutely everything. And that's something that I don't think they were aware of. And that's 
something you see many security people struggle with because the management just doesn't understand that they spend two years bashing their heads against the wall and they burn out and then they quit, smashing their laptop against the wall. Um, personal experience. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've learned, like, I've identified the problem. So, you know what, instead of spending the next two years really, really frustrated, I'm going to spend one or two months now making sure they understand. I'm going to write some documents. I'm going to create some presentations. I'm going to kind of drip feed them some awareness. I'm going to make some strategy statements that touch areas that, hey, oh, we, you know what, we didn't realize that it would actually extend to all this as well. Uh, just, and you slowly kind of build up that, uh, that awareness. I think executive communication has to be quite passive. You just give them, you know, little bits to find here and there so that they kind of make up their own minds. You don't want to be cry wolf. You don't want to be too forceful because they'll just tune out in a second. But you do have to do that. And once you get that support, it's worth the time to to invest in creating that and fixing their perception and, and building that support. Otherwise, you're just going to be frustrated and blocked everywhere. One thing you mentioned there was um, there's no standard way of being a CISO. Yeah. Now, without mentioning any particular organization, um, there are things like certified CISO now, aren't there? There's things like certifications for this. How how do you feel about is, that? It, yeah, that's. Um, I actually had a LinkedIn post about that because I I actually considered it because so I, I'm a high school dropout. I've learned security by doing. I started out as security. Everyone comes from some. People are perplexed when I had a roundtable yesterday, and everyone comes from something else and then went into security. Apparently, yeah. I thought that was interesting because. You know, the, the four guys that threw me in the back of a van will attest that I started out in security and not somewhere else. Um, different ways of being a CISO and that certification. I posted, I just, I just learned, you know, on the go by doing. Uh, so it's all very practical. And I see more and more of these things come up. Um, but that, that's, that's the industry. The industry is kind of indoctrinated in that way and they follow those certifications and those terms and those frameworks and those quote-unquote best standards written by people that have never seen your organization um i i was at a point where i was actually going to get that particular certification just because it would get me some recognition some of the buzzwords because other pe people don't know what they're looking for so they rely on the certification as a label of oh this must be good almost like a brand I think I think you have a very similar opinion, possibly to, yeah. to what I do for certifications. And I I have a few certifications where, um, people would say things like, "Oh, why did you get that?" And it's like, Be "Because I could, right? Yeah. <laughs> if, it's, if it's an achievement that means something to somebody else, then it's not yeah. it's not valueless." And I th I think we're losing the plot there a little bit because I recommend young people get. I used to have tons of certifications, like all the Osaka ones, all the IFC squared ones. A uh, bunch of Cisco ones, you know, CEH, all, all, all those. Um, I just went on, on a rampage because I was I was contracting at the time, and it was just good recognition. Um, and I tell young people get a couple of certs because it'll get you through HR and it'll get you the job. But it's to get the job; it's not to do the job. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's the same reason that I have a degree, right? Yeah. It's because some job applications say I must have a degree on them. Yeah. And whilst I definitely could talk my way around that requirement, yeah. I don't need to, right? It's just tech. You oh don't. no, you must be a certified CISO. Okay, I am tech. <laughs> yeah. I am. I am just too stubborn to deal with that, and and hence all my certifications are gone. And I argue it. And my analogy has always been: you know, you get your driver's license, you learn something, you you learn the curriculum, you did a practical exam, uh, they've checked you can do the basic get from A to B, and here's your certification. That's your driver's license. Great, that was useful to you. You learned something. You have a basic capacity of doing something. But if twenty years on, you drive the same way you did the day you took your driver's test, you're a crap driver. 
So at, at some point, if I lose my license today, that doesn't mean I can't drive anymore. Mm. The police would disagree, but I, <laughs> I can still get in the car and, and get on the M6 Physically if I want. Capital, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that particular certification is an interesting one because it's, it's getting really hyped up because everyone wants to be a CISO now. And I actually looked into that one, and that's when I stumbled upon. So the course was, I believe, two and a half thousand dollars. Okay. Which was steepish, but all right. And then I saw that the course didn't include the course book, which sells for $558. So I did a post on LinkedIn with the, like, Dear EC Council. Oh, did we just name someone? Sorry. Uh, $558 for a book. Are you high? And yeah, that, that got quite a bit of shares. But then they got in touch with me, which was the interesting. Plus, it's $1,200 for the mm. exam. And then you got to pay $400 a year in fees just to hold the title. So, yeah, it's, it's not a cartel or a racket at all, is it? Oh, um, but they got in touch with me to tell me how great the course was and that their pass rate was over 98%. And I'm like, if 98% of people can pass this supposedly grueling test, what, what's special about it? I mean, if you give me a certificate, if you tell me about a certification, only like 5% of people pass it and 95% failed, then I'm interested because that, that must be really tough. That must, if I pass that, that means something. Mm. But it's like, oh yeah, I've spent 4,000 pounds and I got to spend another 4,000 pounds a year to be in this second percentile. I'm as good as 98% of, of the rest, you know, that, that's not, it doesn't distinguish yeah. you in any way. Yeah. Why would I spend that money? I think one of the one of the strengths of certifications, though, is um, if you are familiar with the certification, then you're familiar with its weaknesses, right? Yeah. So if you're, if you're, I, I think in my experience, people having certifications is easier if you're hiring somebody because you can say, oh, I know what that's covered, so I know the areas that you're missing. So can you demonstrate these missing areas through some of the means? And that's that's a good way of looking at it because I do think I do, it's interesting how you know, like a CISSP, or people will identify themselves as a CISSP. And I'm not, you know, a, a rounded uh, mm -hmm. security professional who has, you know, particular affinity in this, this, this. No, no, I am a CISSP. And that's who you become. And I think that's that's deeply flawed because it's, you know, these are paper certifications. I think, you know, the Cisco's, the F5's, the certifications where you're learning a specific product or technology, those are quite good because it's directly applicable. Whereas the security stuff is far more nebulous, it's very abstract, it's not vendor specific, uh, there's very little practical stuff in there. Uh, I've yet to see a certification that helps you deal with communication issues, with business issues, with politics or any of that, which, you know, especially in security management, that's a massive part of your job. Is that also maybe linked to the fact that CISO is not well defined? CISO is not well defined, is it? So, like, doing a certification that says you are a certified CISO or some uh, yeah. alternative, um, yeah, if it's if it's not well-defined, if, uh, if the requirement or role, maybe not well-defined, but just different for different organizations. Yeah. Well, I was referring to certifications in general, but I think I think it's a great point there because there is no, no, I think, and we, we said this before, I think every CISO does things differently. Everyone's got their own idea of how things should work. Uh, I've got my way. That doesn't mean I don't appreciate other people's views and I take... Uh, you know, I take inputs from them and I, I see little bits and pieces of value that I can incorporate. Uh, but it's it's very different. And I think a lot of companies, it's not just at CISO level, but it might be prevalent at CISO level where they don't know what they, meet, what they need. 
It was like, we need it. We've been told we need a CISO. I read a magazine article that we need a CISO. Yeah. And and here's this thing that says this, this guy's a certified CISO. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was actually, when I looked at the curriculum for that course, it was, it was just like an, an amalgamation of, you know, oh, this NIST standard and this ISO. And this, it had very little practical stuff in there that would actually make you a good security leader. Yeah, I think I think that is a really good point, though, which isn't often talked about, where a business is trying to hire a security person, certainly a, a very senior, like a head of security or, yeah. or a CISO, um, where they don't know what they want, right? And, yeah. it, and it does feature in, in other areas of a business. For a CEO to hire a CFO, for example, if they're not particularly skilled in that area, is difficult, right? Mm-hmm. How do you uh, define what level they should be at? How do you track them to make sure that they're doing well? And we talked about earlier... Maybe metrics aren't the best thing, but yeah, I do think there's a problem with a company certainly hiring their first few security people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back to metrics. Metrics are, are tricky, tricky things. Um, I I like to go almost more by feel or maturity level, uh, but even then, you need. Well, I, li- I like the maturity model to be honest, because if you're the whole like repeatable and stuff, although people I think are a bit deluded when they rate themselves like, yeah, yeah, we have this. It's all documented. It's all repeatable. Uh, okay. Why are you scrambling uh, every, um, for a whole month every time the auditor is about to show up, quickly updating everything and making it look like you've been doing stuff? that <laughs> Repeatable um, doesn't mean efficient. <laughs> yeah. Or, or actually being done. Like we could repeat this, but we don't because we're busy doing other stuff. Yeah. One of the things I find working with companies uh, through maturity assessments as, as like an independent third party is uh, very often you'll you'll work through an organization like this is repeatable, this is repeatable, this is measurable, um, and you'll work your way down, and then they'll suddenly have like a zero grade in some area, and it's just like wow, you just haven't considered this security risk, right? right. So I think the most my kind of go to that would be network access control, so something like AOD dot one X, but it, but it's just a like literally, so you're doing well in all of the things you thought of, but maybe it's not a holistic approach, maybe they haven't thought of every area. Yeah, I. I've- you know what I notice? I notice places where they'll do security assessments and they'll do security, you know, across whatever. You know, this particular auditor has, they've broken it down into 12 different security domains mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, 12 different technical areas. And you'll see, you know, oh, yeah, you're a 7 here, you're an 8 here, you're a, you're a 5 here, you're a 2 there, you're an 8 here. And I'm like, some things are good, some things are bad. And to me, that sets off alarm bells immediately. Because if you had a mature kind of security leadership and, and visibility, it would at least be consistent. It would be significantly consistent. How, how can you have an eight in one area and a two? And like what happened? How can you be that good over here and terrible there when it's the same people, it's the same philosophy, it's the same business driving it? There's some, it's just not right. Maybe somebody misunderstanding prioritization. It, to me, it just sets off alarm. It's like if... If I see a bunch of threes and then a bunch of eights, I just presume those eights are actually threes. You just have not dug deep enough because there's no way. If you did things in a, in a consistent, holistic way, you should have some level of homogeneity there. I do I do think that it, it can be reflective of a company's security maturity. For example, I worked with a company um, earlier in the year who have uh, two-factor authentication on every logon box but don't patch anything. There you go. And it's like, hey, yeah, two-factor authentication is great, and it is definitely a security improvement over you know, traditional passwords, but they have um, scored well in the things that they've thought of and yep. have just not thought of. Lots of things. But, and I think recent experience, I think audits are a little bit to blame for this because what I see is that um, a lot of boards, they don't really talk to their security people, but they'll listen to auditors. 
and auditors will, you know, they'll come in and they'll pick, you know, 10, 12 different places to look at. And then these are the issues. But, and then they write a report on that. It's like, this is okay. This is okay. This is terrible. You really need to fix. This is urgent. This is critical. This is all right. And that's what the board sees. But for the board, that then becomes all of information security is those 10 or 12 points in that report. And it's, it's just not holistic. And so they start focusing on this and they start forcing you to fix that issue. Um, and then, yeah, you, you address those issues because, you know, they're going to fire you if you don't. Um, but it's not representative of all the other risks in the company. It's like, oh, yeah, we, we have MFA now, but we, our patching is still terrible. But patching wasn't mentioned in the audit report, so it's not a priority for anyone when realistically it should be. Um, so it's not... And I think the problem is when you have an area and you take it from, I mean, if, if it doesn't impact users or stakeholders then and it's a quick technical fix, then it's okay. But anywhere where you've got a business impact or an IT impact, if you, if you try to go from zero to 100, it's just going to be a rubber band because like everything around it is still a zero and that, that band is just going to snap back and you're, you know, you're going to get left with a five out of 100. Um, Whereas if you say you get a hundred areas, instead of taking one at a time and trying to get them from zero to a hundred, just get all one hundred areas up to a one, because you won't yeah. have you won't have any resistance. It'll be consistent. People won't reject it, and it, it'll be easier for them to achieve it. And then you take everyone to a two, and everyone to a three, and everyone to a four. So consistency. Just that consistent slow growth that they don't even notice it because the the impact in any one given time is so minimal. Uh, and you know, hey, we've we've gone from a zero to a five now. Yeah, let's go to a ten, and uh, and you know, out of a hundred. So these these small incremental, and then they see that hey, we we've actually done some security improvements. They take pride in it. They believe they can do it. They they see you know we've we've gone from here to here, and that was fine. So let's take the next step and go there, uh, and, and they're not afraid of it. And then if you do that holistically, you know, and it, it's the the wall analogy of there's no point in having a hundred foot wall all around except for you know a five foot gap where everyone can walk through. Like, maybe yeah. maybe there's another metric flaw there as well. If a company is looking at a maturity review that says, oh, we're a zero in this area and a 10 in this area, maybe they go, oh, we average five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, that, you know, it, it's it's that, you know, a 10-foot wall that goes all the way around the village is more efficient than a 100-foot wall that only covers a third of it. You know, so grow grow it, you know, consistently. I think that's, that's the best approach. And it, it's more in tune with the kind of human reality that otherwise people just... People will resist. It makes a lot of sense. I think I think the biggest theme throughout has probably been it's visibility, right? Visibility is everything. You can't you can't grade your maturity if you if you don't have visibility yeah. of every area. Yeah. You can't patch your systems if you don't have visibility of all of your assets. And and that's my you know and I think traditionally again IT does a lot of these things, but IT is focused on functionality. So they you know if you've got rogue IT assets that they don't know about. They don't know about it. So I can ask them for all the reporting in the world, but I can't see it, which is why one of the things I'm insisting uh, at Salford is like in our charter, we have the, a direct visibility approach where security will have direct visibility to everything. We get to install agents. We can do asset discovery. We're not going to rely on IT for these things. Uh, once we see them, then we're happy to hand things over to IT, but we will see everything. Because there's, otherwise there's just no point. And every time I have to request information, you know, it, it takes longer for me to request the information and then chase them to do it because they're busy. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, and then the information I get back is most well, their information. It's it's perfect for them from the functional standpoint, but it may not reflect all the things I want to see from a security standpoint. And there may be systems missing altogether from there. I think one of the things that you, you seem to just draw as the, the sensible thing is IT and security being separate, right? So you're talking about um, implementing agents and things without IT doing that. Um, a lot of companies, it's the same department still, right? I You think so? I have actually found it to be typically separate. And I'm quite curious where that happened historically. Yeah. If you go back like 25, 35 years, you know, you had one, you had one Unix system in your organization, you had one sysadmin, and he did, he configured everything, and if he was any good, he did the security as well. You know, it was all, all the security functions within the operating system were the purview of the, of the sysadmin. At some point, we started separating security entirely, um, which then kind of creates this friction between security and IT. Counterpoint. And, the phrase DevSecOps. Yeah. Is that not an integration of everything? I think that's great. I think that DevSecOps is the only space in security where we actively recognize that proactive security approach of building it into the, the business process. And for some reason, in almost every other area, it's considered completely alien. You know, get involved in the SDLC, get involved in provisioning, get involved in legal, get involved in projects, get involved in operations. Uh, do we want, yeah, it's difficult. Uh, no, you stay over there. DevSecOps, for some reason, it's acceptable. I think I, it's a good precedent. Hopefully it'll, it'll make its way into architecture and all the other disciplines. Yeah, that kind of integration makes a lot of sense. Well... That is all of the questions that I had pre-prepared for you. Is there anything that you wanted to, to raise that we haven't we haven't covered? You might not be able to shut me up after, so <laughs> <laughs> can we just leave it there? That'll do. We'll, we'll round it off yeah. there then. Um, well, thank you very much for coming in. You're welcome. Um, we always like to do a, a shout out to the audience to see um, how how these things affect them. So I think my question for the audience for this podcast would be, do you see... IT and security as distinct entities, or do you see them as security as a function of IT? Please let us know in the social medias. Um, I would also be interested in which you think is better. Should we be looking to align everything? Should DevSecOps and those kinds of things be the way of the future, or should security be kept separately so that we can enable better auditing and those things? Let us know what you think, and thanks for listening. Thank you.